Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm looking at Matthew, the fourth chapter in my Bible, and I will invite you to be finding Matthew chapter four in your Bible as well. This part of our worship is devoted to the preaching of God's Word, and one of the very best ways that you can engage in the preaching is by following along in your Bible at this passage and the other passages that we'll be reading and discussing for these next few minutes. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 4, I will echo the welcome from earlier. It is great to see everybody today. We have a number of guests in attendance. We're thankful for your presence with us. We have our, our traveling folks who were away last week for the Labor Day weekend back with us again, and we're happy for that. Just great to see everybody here on this beautiful Lord's Day morning to worship God and to give and to receive encouragement. I'm glad that you chose to be here. If I were to ask you, what is the first word of the gospel, what would you say? And no, I'm not asking if you were to open up your New Testament to Matthew 1 verse 1 and what's the first word there. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, what's the first word of the actual message of the gospel? The word gospel means good news. And so maybe we would expect that that word would be something positive and something good and something upbeat like Like love, or grace, or forgiveness. But actually, actually none of those are the gospel's first word. In Matthew chapter 4, in the very first recorded message of Jesus' earthly ministry, we are told in verse 17, Matthew 4 verse 17, that from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first word of the gospel is repent. Now, that's not a pleasant word to most folks. Because it implies that somebody is doing something that they need to stop doing and that they need to change. That someone is doing something that's wrong, something that's bad, something that's sinful, and they need to correct their course. In fact, repentance is such an unpleasant term to many people's ears, it comes with such a negative connotation that one author actually called it the most unpopular message in the history of mankind. And yet, that is where Jesus chose to begin the message of the gospel, with the message of repentance. And of course, Jesus was not the only one who did that. John the Baptist, Jesus' forerunner, he came preaching in the wilderness. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The twelve apostles that Jesus chose and then sent out, they went out proclaiming that people should repent. Mark 6, verse 12. On the day of Pentecost, when the church was first established, Peter preached an amazing sermon. And the culminating thoughts of that sermon was this, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, Acts 2, verse 38. That was a central truth in the teaching of all the apostles, probably especially so the Apostle Paul. As on Mars Hill, when he told the Athenians that God commands all people everywhere to mm -hmm, repent, Acts 17, verse 30. Even in the book of Revelation, even in the midst of all the signs and the symbols and the imagery of the book of Revelation... Five out of the seven churches of Asia Minor, Jesus sent a personal letter, and the main clear idea, the main instruction of those letters was, Repent! Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. Over and over and over again, the teaching of the gospel just cries out with the call to repent. 
Is it unpopular? Yes, it is. Is it unpleasant? You better believe it. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the line that separates the saved from the lost is repentance. The line that separates the faithful from the prodigal is repentance. The line that separates the strong and mature in Christ and those who are weak and floundering in their Christianity is repentance. And if you and I want to be on the right side of that line, we must repent. Repentance is not just a one-time thing that you do before you get baptized. No, it is an ongoing thing that we probably are going to do every single day of our lives. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you do that? What exactly is involved in repentance, biblically speaking? You know, it's one thing for the Bible to just tout over and over again, repent, 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 but what would really be helpful is for us to just have a passage that just kind of lays out the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how of repentance. That is what would really help us. I got you. This morning, I got you. Open up your Old Testament to the book of Joel. The book of Joel is not a book of the Bible that we spend a whole lot of time in, but I'm going to invite you there this morning. In Joel chapter 2, this is an amazing chapter in Scripture. In fact, I'll remind you that this is the chapter, it is one of the chapters, that Peter actually preaches from on the day of Pentecost when he preached that sermon there to those people. And 3,000 people responded to the gospel call. And right here in the middle of Joel chapter 2, we get, I believe, Just the fundamentals on repentance. And I want to work out of this text and just kind of break out those ideas as to what it means to heed the gospel's call to repent. Do you have Joel 2 queued up? Look at it with me there. In Joel chapter 2, this is verse 12. The Bible says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. That passage in those two verses, I think set before us the fundamentals of repentance. Did you catch them there? Like, for example, Joel chapter 2 spells out the time frame of repentance. When should you repent? Well, Joel 2 verse 12 tells us explicitly, Now, even now, declares the Lord. I just love how that passage starts there. There is an urgency. There is a momentum. There is a movement here. Repentance is not something to be put off until tomorrow or next week, or next month, or next year. No, 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 no. It's now. Right now. Joel says you need to be repenting immediately. The Bible never encourages the idea of repenting later. You know, I'll fix that and I'll get that changed at some point down the road. No, the time for repentance is always right now. Do you want to see that in action? Hold your place here in Joel. We'll be coming back. Look in the book of Acts, please. In Acts 24, in Acts chapter 24, here is a fella who needed to repent. He did. He needed to repent. His name was Felix. 
And he has the opportunity to hear the gospel be proclaimed and taught to him. In Acts 24, Paul is actually there present with him. He's got kind of an audience here of just just a couple of people. And he is preaching to Felix about faith in Christ Jesus. But notice verse 25, Acts 24 verse 25, that as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and he said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix wasn't interested in that now thing, was he? Paul's trying to help him to be self-controlled. Stop doing certain things. Do other things that you should be doing. Felix wasn't interested in doing that right now. Like so many other people even today, Felix knew that he needed to repent, but he didn't want to do that now. He wanted to continue on in his sin, carry on with it just a little while longer, and then maybe later I'll get around to doing some of that repenting. Didn't Felix understand? Don't you and I understand that right now, right now is all we have for certain. You know, why don't we think more about that? Why don't we say more about that? You know, usually when we do think about the urgency of now, we usually think about that, and preachers even talk about that in terms of in terms of sudden death, some kind of sudden tragedy taking place. You get run over by a semi truck, you keel over and have a heart attack and die right there. Uh, you know, a band of flying monkeys comes and attacks you and just tears you limb from limb. All kinds of terrible things can happen that'll cause you to die immediately. And so we say, hey, you better repent now. You better get your life with God, your life right with God right now because you may die. And the truth is, you might. You could die. You could die today. You could get run over by a bus this very day. That is true. But the fact of the matter is, statistically speaking, you're probably not going to die today. In fact, I would hazard a guess that most everybody here doesn't even think that they're going to die today. But you know what? Dying unexpectedly, that is not the only reason to repent now. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that it's not even the main reason that you should repent now. The main reason that you should repent now is because your heart is softened and it is receptive and it is open now. That you are in the right frame of mind. You are in the right positioning, if you will, right now. Look in Isaiah, please, in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah, the 55th chapter, listen to the words of the prophet. These are actually very sobering words in my estimation. In Isaiah 55, this is verse 6. In Isaiah 55, verse 6, the prophet says, Behold, excuse me, Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. I tell you this, I don't know everything about getting lost, but Isaiah seems to suggest that there is some dimension of that where you could be wanting to repent, you could be trying to seek the Lord, and you're not going to be able to find Him. And so the suggestion there is, you better be doing that now before that ever even happens. Somebody would maybe ask, well, when does that happen? And the answer is, I don't know when that happens. I don't know when you get to a point where you can't find the Lord and you can't repent. All I know is, I don't want to get to that point. The solution then is to repent now. 
We'll see that in the New Testament. Look in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews the 6th chapter, the Hebrew writer says that there are going to be some folks, Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4, there's going to be some folks that it's going to be impossible for them. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, they've shared in the Holy Spirit, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they've fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. You know, we stress all the time that God will accept the penitent sinner. And I am afraid that how that comes across in some people's ears is, well, well, one of these days, eventually, when I get around to it, I'm going to repent and God's going to forgive me and it will all be fine. Isaiah says, the Hebrew writer says, don't count on it. Don't bank on that. Don't go hedging your bets on later. Some people can get so mired in sin. Some people can get so stuck in just an evil habit that they cannot get out of it. They cannot break free from it. They cannot repent. Why? Because their hearts are so hardened in sin that they don't want to repent. So the timetable for repenting is when? It's now. It's now. When you're thinking about it. When your heart is, is soft and it's moldable and pliable. It's when your conscience is still tender to that. It's when you sense that need for forgiveness. I need to do something about this. Right then, right there. That's when you need to repent. Don't squander that chance. Which means that right now, Right now, I think an opportune moment would be for all of us to stop and to think a little bit. Let's all of us take just a second and let's examine those deep, dark corners of our heart. And let's look to see what sin is hiding in there. What sin is in there that I've just kind of made peace with? that I've just kind of temporarily succumbed defeat to. I've waved the white flag to the devil here because I've decided that I just can't get it out of there. At least I'm not willing to do anything to get it out of there right now. I'll take care of that at some other point in time, just not right now. What is it? And once you identify what that is, what you need to hear loudly and clearly is the call of Joel 2. When should you repent? Now. Even now, declares the Lord. That's the first thing that we need to understand about repentance. But it's not the only thing. Look again at Joel 2. As you turn back to Joel 2, I think there you will also find the direction of repentance. Look at verse 12 again. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. In fact, Joel doubles up on that in verse 13 when he says there, Return to the Lord your God. Repentance is, just in its essence, it is a turning. Without having to dissect the Hebrew language here, or pulling out a dictionary or a lexicon, I think we can see a pretty clear definition of repentance here. It is a complete turnaround. It is to be going in one direction at one moment, and then to suddenly make a 180 degree rotation and to start going in a different direction. And a big part of that, of course, is that we're going to stop sinning. 
I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to turn away from that. Not doing that anymore. That's the direction that I was going in, living for sin and for self, for carnal, physical, fleshly desires and gratification. But now I am turning away from that. But I need you to listen very, very carefully. It is not enough to just turn away from sin. That's a start. That's where we have to start. We need to do something more, though. We need to turn away from sin, but then that turning needs to continue all the way to where we are turning to God. That completes the turnaround of repentance. And that is the emphasis here in Joel chapter 2. Look at it again. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. Return to God. Turning away from the sin. That's a start, but again, that's all it is. is It's a start. You stop and think about it. There are people who stop sinning, but they don't repent. When a thief gets caught in his stealing, and he is then thrown in prison, that thief, he stops sinning. He stops doing that stealing. He's not stealing anymore. He's in the penitentiary. Let me ask you, if that is all that he has done, has he repented? No, he is not. Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was very sorry for what he had done in betraying Jesus. He gave the money back. He did not betray the Lord anymore after that. Does that mean that Judas repented? No, it does not. The problem in each of those cases is that the turning was only partial. It was only maybe halfway at the most because there was not that complete turning back to God. Joel is showing us that the repentant person turns from their sin and turns to the Lord. And I wonder if maybe one of the reasons that we have so much difficulty with making that full 180 degree turn to God is because maybe we just have a poor understanding of sin itself. We don't think about it as seriously as we really ought to. How many times have you heard preachers say, that the word sin in the New Testament Greek, that it means a missing of the mark. That sin is a missing of the mark. And there is a sense in which that is true. The word that is translated in the New Testament, it comes from an ancient archery term. And it did have to do with the idea of of missing the target. didn't quite get the target and was kind of off in some way. But I need you to know that by the time of the New Testament, sin, it meant... Sin. It meant the violation of the law of God. When first century Christians, when they heard Paul preach, or when they read Peter's epistle, and they saw the word sin there, they weren't thinking about archery. They weren't thinking about missing the mark. They were thinking about transgressing divine law. And yet even as I say that quite often, we borrow from the etymology of that word. Again, you've got to go back centuries and centuries to get that etymology to start talking about this idea of missing the mark. And what that does is when we talk about that missing the mark thing is it puts an image in our mind that somehow God's standard is this little bitty teeny tiny bullseye a hundred yards way off in the distance and I shot at it and I did the very best that I could to get it right there in the center of that tiny little circle And I did the best that I could, but my arrow, well, my arrow landed a a couple of inches this way. Or it landed several inches over this way. 
And so while it wasn't quite perfect, I got kind of near to it. And it's okay because at least I got close. I did the best that I could. And so I'll just I'll pull me another arrow and I'll shoot me another arrow. And I'll see if I can get a little bit closer this time without missing the mark by so much. Folks, I need you to understand that that is not the biblical conception of sin. Nowhere in Scripture... Will you find the idea that sin is somehow us just kind of missing it by a hair? You know, I, I wish I would have got a hundred, but I got an eighty-five and that's pretty close, that's pretty good. No, you will never find sin defined that way in the Bible. In the Bible, what is sin? In the Bible, sin is selfish, willful, breaking God's law. It is choosing to do what I want to do instead of what the God who created me wants me to do. It is a violation of God's holiness. It is lawlessness. It is wickedness. It is inexcusable iniquity. It is sin. In Scripture, sin is an aberration. It is the only thing in the entire created order that does not do what God created it to do. That's you and me. We do that. And when we do that, when we do what we want, we sin. Instead of doing what the Lord who knows best tells us what to do, we sin. In short then, sin is not just simply a matter of no big deal. I'll just pull the arrow and try me another one here because, hey, I only missed it by an inch or so. No. You want an archery metaphor? You want to use the archery thing? Sin is taking out that arrow and loading it up in your bow. And shooting somebody in the crowd. That's sin. Sin is pulling the arrow out and pointing it at your foot and shooting your foot. That would be a more apt description of sin. And that is what sin is. It is utter rebellion against God and against His will. And so then a huge part of repentance is the understanding that what I did, what I did, it was not trivial. It was not just some momentary lapse in judgment. It was not just an innocent mistake. It was not something that I can blame on you, or you, or my parents, or my upbringing, or my environment. No. Sin is an affront to the God of heaven. And so I must then come to Him. I must turn to Him and seek and beg for His forgiveness. We are throwing ourselves at the grace and the mercy of God, of the very one that we have sinned against. Do you want to hear what that sounds like? Look in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, here's the sound of someone who is turning away from their sin and is turning to God. In Acts 2, in verse 37, upon hearing the preaching of the gospel that Jesus Christ is Lord and He is Christ, He is the Messiah, these sinners in this audience, they then cried out in Acts 2 verse 37, Brothers, what shall we do? What can we do about this? Look at what we've done. How can this be fixed? How can this be corrected? Could there be a better expression in just simple, plain terms? of what it means to turn the forsaking of one way and then the coming to a new way. In fact, I would draw your attention to that other expression that's used there in Acts 2 verse 37. 
Did you notice as well that it says that these people, before they cried that out, it says that they were cut to the heart, pricked in their heart, some translations say. I think that suggests this third idea. And that is that there is an emotional response that should accompany repentance. And in fact, as you turn back to Joel chapter 2, I think you'll see it even better right there. In Joel chapter 2, look again at verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, rend, or that is to tear your hearts and not your garments. I want to be very clear. Sorrow is not repentance. Those things are not synonyms. Being really sorry is not the same thing as repenting. Whenever a celebrity or a famous person, a politician, whenever they do something sinful in a public way, they do something really reprehensible, and it ends up affecting their popularity, it affects their poll numbers, it affects movie ticket sales, what do they usually do? Well, usually they're pretty quick and their publicists are pretty quick to have them go hit the talk show circuit or they hold a press conference, or they send out some kind of a press release or some kind of a statement in which they are very contrite. And maybe they cry, and they say that they are sorry, and they go through all of the various emotional responses that generally accompany sorrow. And while it is certainly not my place, and it's not your place to judge the genuineness of that sorrow, I want to reiterate that sorrow in and of itself, sorrow alone, That is not repentance. If it were, then that means Judas repented a thousand times over because he was very sorry. Sorrow by itself is not repentance. But can I say this morning that it is a part of repentance? That's 2 Corinthians 7, isn't it? In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says some things here about the role of godly Sorrow, And that is the emotional response that ought to go along with repentance. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about how that kind of godly sorrow helps to bring about real repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, this is verse 8, Paul says, Even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, verse 9, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That passage talks about that there is, yeah, there's a time to be cheerful. The Ecclesiastes writer talks about that. But Paul says there that there also comes a time that when repenting needs to be done, that that is a time to have some grief. That there ought to be some sorrow there. And I am terrified in some ways that we have become just almost too sophisticated for sorrow in our day and time. That we are just so adept at excusing our sin and justifying our sin, glossing over our sin, blaming others for our sin, that no longer do we see tear-stained cheeks and bowed heads and contrite bodies and someone who is ready to submit to God because they have rent, they have 
torn their heart in two. I want you to understand, I am not trying to dictate to you what your emotional response ought to be in repentance. Every person here is different, which means every person's emotional makeup is different. How you process and how you work those emotions, that's going to be with you. That's between you and God. But Paul is pressing us. Joel is pressing us. That when a person gets it, when they understand what sin has done to them, when they understand how sin has hurt and disappointed God, when they understand how sin has damaged that relationship, when they are then committed to making that turn, to making that change, to repenting, then there is going to be a reaction. And it ought to be a reaction that just reaches down into the depths of their soul and it wells up and it comes out and it says to the Lord, in whatever way, Lord, I am so sorry that I have sinned against You. And it is that mourning, that fasting, that weeping, that rending of the heart that ultimately drives us to God where we need to be. Which brings me quite nicely to this final aspect of repentance. As you turn back to Joel chapter 2, I sure don't want us to miss this. In Joel chapter 2, I want you to watch that Joel is going to show us the engine of repentance. In Joel chapter 2, look at verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and He relents from disaster. Do you want to know why repentance works? Do you want to know what gives repentance its power? It is the abundant grace and kindness of God. Our God is so gracious and He is so kind. You know, maybe one of the reasons that we emphasize baptism so much is because we see that as being, well, well, that's what we do in this salvation thing. That's our side of the equation, if you will. And so that's why we urge people, here in just a moment, we're going to urge people to do just that, to be baptized. Hey, there's water. Come on, let's do that right now. There's water right back here. Let's be baptized. Let's have our sins washed away. But what we need to remember is that baptism would have no power It would have no force. It would have no meaning if God did not invest it with that power and that force and that meaning. Without God doing some working in baptism, then baptism is is just a person getting wet. In the same way, think about repentance. Repentance has no power. It has no meaning. It has no force without God's mercy and God's grace behind it. All of the turning in the world, all of the grieving, all of the godly sorrow in the world, all of the rending of a person's heart, it would be of no effect at all if it were not for God's abounding in steadfast love. And let's be clear, God has no obligation to be merciful to even the most penitent sinner. I mean, you could be doing this repentance thing just as perfectly and as awesomely as you possibly could. You could be doing exactly what Joel 2 is talking about. And you may be doing that with the sincerest conviction and the most genuine desire to repent and to receive God's forgiveness. And still, God would have every right to say to you, no. Get away from me. 
I don't want anything to do with you. I don't have anything to do with sinners. God would have every right to do that. And yet by His grace, by His mercy, by His steadfast love, He offers you the chance to be forgiven. And that is what makes repentance so powerful. Because when it comes to salvation, God is the one who's doing the looking for us, not the other way around. He's the one who does the saving. He is the one who is gracious in so many ways. He sent His Son, graciously gave His Son to die on a cross. He graciously, mercifully sent His Word to instruct us and to teach us and to guide us. He patiently grants us the time and the opportunity that we need in those and a thousand other ways. God's mercy and God's kindness makes it possible for us to repent. And in so doing, we get to be the beneficiaries of the blessing that come through repenting. Look that through that lens then. That word repent doesn't sound like such an unpleasant word after all, does it? In fact, I am persuaded that the original recipients of Joel's message, I think they were probably overjoyed. They were thrilled to hear that God actually was granting them the opportunity to turn and to come to Him. And this morning I am doing my best to just echo that same message in hopes that you too will not get sour when you hear that word repent. That you will not think of that as being a negative and ugly and an awful thing. My hope is that you will be thrilled to hear that in Christ Jesus you can turn away from sin and you can come to God by repenting. And you can know the blessings that follow from it. And so as we extend heaven's invitation, I'm going to give you just a minute or two right now to try to mull all of that over in your mind. And usually when we extend the invitation, we put an awful lot of emphasis on kind of that final step in God's plan for redemption. We talk an awful lot about baptism. And there's no doubt about it that baptism is critically important and I am not trying to minimize the importance of baptism at all this morning. But I will remind you, that the order of events in Acts 2 verse 38 is repent and be baptized. That turning, that must happen first. There's a reason it is the first word of the gospel. And we are urging you as we get ready to sing this song, we are urging you to make that turn now. I heard someone say recently in a lesson, repentance is not the sitting on the front pew. Repentance is the decision that causes the person to get out of the pew and start walking this way. And I think that's exactly right. Do you need to repent? Brother or sister, is there some sin that you need to repent of? That you need to turn to God this morning and beg for His forgiveness? It may be that you need to call upon your spiritual family here to help you in that prayer. We're ready to do that. It may be that you're needing to make that turn for the very first time in rendering your obedience to the gospel. Repentance is not easy. I hope that in no way this morning that what I have taught has made repentance come across like it's some easy thing to do. It is not. It is difficult. But you can do it. God makes it possible for you to do it by His grace and by His mercy. And if we can help you to repent and to be baptized today and to become a child of God, then this invitation is for you. Whatever your need may be, you simply need to come to the front and make it known. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.